Welcome to the Happy Startup School Radio. In this series, Lawrence interviews established startup founders and thought leaders. This episode is a conversation with DHH, the founder of Basecamp. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Lawrence, the one of the co-founders of the Happy Startup School, and today I'm lucky enough to be joined by David Heinemeyer Hansen, um, one of the co-founders of Basecamp, um, who's set up Ruby on Rails and written many books. And uh, first off, just like to say, Dave, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. And um, so, yeah, David's kindly offered his time to talk through some of his thinking around startups, um, talk a little bit about the work he's done, and also. Um, yeah, just hopefully share some of the stuff we're doing and see how um, you guys can learn from some of the stuff he's done and some of the stuff we're doing to bring a bit more meaning and uh, thinking to some of the startup world. So Dave, just want to start off by saying, when we started out, we started out as a digital agency probably about 10 years ago before we set up the startup school and we were certainly inspired by a lot of your writing and work around then. Um, but we were keen to know when you started out, who was who or what really inspired you, whether in business or in life, to, to do what you do today? Sure. Yeah, I'm a big fan of role models. I'm a big fan of being not even just inspired, but copying people, copying people's approach. Um, Not necessarily in the literal way of just like being someone else, but copying the things that they're doing that works Um, and the thinking that works. So when I started with the rail stuff and programming in general and getting involved with business, some of the big influences were a bunch of software writers that weren't just software writers, but were also storytellers talking about how they did software development and why they did software development that way. Uh, And a couple of those are um, people like Kent Beck, um, one of the key figures behind extreme programming and test-driven development and and a bunch of other movements in the software world. Um, I remember seeing Kent at 2001, there was a, conference in uh, Denmark called uh, Yao, some Java conference that I went to. I think it was actually the first conference I went to. And I saw him on stage and he was talking about extreme programming. I just went like, wow, that is such a clear thinker. That is such a clear presentation of a very counter narrative compared to what I've heard and what I've been taught in terms of software development and waterfalls and cycles and so forth. So I found that intensely inspiring and, and reading Kent's work afterwards equally so. There was such a um, clear thinking to it, alternative thinking to it, a rejection of sort of the way things were and starting over from first principles and developing a whole paradigm and belief system out of a uh, set of values and principles and practices. So Kent was a big influence. At the same time, uh, a couple of other people in the same sphere, uh, Martin Fowler, uh, especially on the technical side, his uh, pattern books, uh, Patterns of Enterprise Application Architecture, I still consider it to be one of the absolute classics for Rails. Um, I basically went shopping in that book when I put Rails together and said, oh, I like this, I like that, I like this. Um, and Martin has written tons of stuff over the years as well. Um, Dave Thomas, another person who was uh, involved early on in the Ruby community. Um, Pickaxe book was was one of the first books that um, was available in English for people to learn Ruby from. So I picked up a bunch in, in Ruby from that. Um, he's been involved ever since. Um, so on th- that's a that's a good selection on the programming side. On the business side and on the community side, I'd say there's 
just two highlights. Uh, Kathy Sierra, uh, this was more perhaps a little more like 2004, 2005. Kathy Sierra ran this blog called Creating Passionate Users that talks all about um, how you not only appeal to users, how you make them kick ass, how you position yourself when you are not the richest, uh, most well-funded either startup or company in the world. Um, one of her golden nuggets is the choice between you can either outspend or you can outteach. We took that to heart very early on and um, decided that we were going to outteach the competition, uh, that we were going to outshare. Uh, that's what led to us writing books and speaking at conferences or writing the blog and so on that we felt like this is something we have we can offer we have our thoughts we have our opinions we have our experiences and we can package those up in a way that others can benefit from that and we can give it away for free and then hope that part karma part pr part uh, marketing that that's going to come back to us in such a way that people care about what we have to say and by extension they care about the products that we make so Kathy really informed and gave a lot of intellectual ballast to the notion of building an audience and not just the goal of doing so, but the tactics of doing so. And then finally, another person I'd mention is, um, I, I've had the great pleasure to meet all the people I've talked uh, about so far um, and, and conferred with them. One person I've not had the privilege of talking to is uh, Ricardo Semler. He wrote a book called Maverick about his experience um, turning a uh, Latin American industrial company upside down with all sorts of extremely interesting organizational techniques and transformations. And that gave us a lot of, gave me a lot of really ideas and setting the bar very high for how, you, how different you could do things. Um, so I'd very much recommend everyone to read his book, uh, Maverick. It's absolute <laughs> classic. Uh, applies to all sorts of industries and especially so because he's doing some things you think oh wow that would be radical if you were doing that in a five-person IT startup he's he was doing that in a 8,000 person industrial company making pumps for the marine industry you just go like that is about as stale and as industrial as things get um, so yeah that yeah. is a collection of five of my key influences well, um, so yeah, I mean, Maverick was one of the books that really inspired us when we first started out. I think for that reason that you said it's not just a, a bunch of kids in a in a little garage; it's you know a massive industry. Um, and I think also he's now moved into education, so he's doing some really interesting work around schools and bringing dem democracy to schools and the next generation of business people too. Um, it's interesting you talked at the beginning about copying rather than just getting inspired by. Interested to dive into that a bit more because um, I know Seth Godin talks a little bit about not just not reinventing the wheel every time you're starting a business, but actually copying the things you can and, and bringing your unique, um, you know, mission and values to it. So how would you say you can copy someone without just looking like you're ripping everything off? What was it you can bring or what you brought to what you saw and connected the dots to actually do something different? Well, the, the way I like to copy is I like to take someone's technique or approach or feel of how they're attacking a subject and then apply it to a different niche. So looking at, um, let's say, the, the work that Kent has been doing in Smalltalk and Java, and then trying to apply some of those same techniques and ideas to, to Ruby, or taking something like uh, Ricardo Simler and his ideas for his industrial company and then applying that to a 
to a different context. I think there's a, a lot of magic sparks happen when you take good ideas that were designed for one context and then you put them into another context and like you try to copy them as much as you can but then as you do that copy process you realize the places where it needs to tweak and need to twist and that's where it ends up becoming your own but it really I think it behooves people to to try to copy pretty closely until they realize how this thing works I think a lot of people say, oh, yeah, yeah, I got the gist of it, right? And their summary, their gist is perhaps just not the most valuable parts, right? They took the wrong lessons away from what they were trying to copy because they were too timid in how much they were trying to copy. So I've been more inspired to just copy more until I fully understand or understood what it was that I was copying. Because I think oftentimes you have this intuition that some person is right. Like I had this intuition about Ken and Dave Thomas and Martin Fowler and Carl Semler and Kathy Sierra that I don't fully understand everything that they say at this moment, or I don't understand all the implications of it, but I understand like they, they have something here. So mm -hmm. until I understand that full spectrum of what it is that they're trying to do in their work, um, I think it suits me well to stick closely to the source material until I have become an expert in it. Um, so sometimes in programming, that's things like when I got started with Ruby, I was coming from PHP and Java and a lot of, especially metaprogramming was quite foreign to me. And I kind of sort of understood what was going on, but didn't quite. So I, I read just a lot of Ruby code and started just copy and pasting stuff in and altering it after the fact and just like, this looks like how I'm supposed to do things. Don't fully understand why it is I'm supposed to do things this way yet. But um, I trust that there are people before me who figured it out to a higher degree than I currently hold. And it's faster to me to learn that, to gain those insights if I stick closely to it and um, just level up on it. I think a lot of people have an undue amount of pride in their own creative abilities at a point where it's unwarranted. <laughs> Which I had none of that, right? I, I had no presumptions that I was any Ruby expert when I started working with Ruby and I started working with Rails. I knew that like all the things I didn't know. So I knew that there was just such a far path ahead of me um, that I should just suck up as much as possible. And this goes for all sorts of domains. I think a lot of people are held back by their ego's desire to put their thumbprints and fingerprints and all sorts of prints all over their approach too early in the learning stages. Um, like they're trying to be unique at a time when they just aren't unique. There are tons and tons and tons of people out there who are at a medium or mediocre level of proficiency and there's nothing wrong with that. But the way to stay there is to think that you're already special and great and fantastic. Um, that is the way to plateau. Yeah. So until you've really reached the upper echelons of understanding the domain that you're in and the practice that you're doing, stop thinking that you have it figured out. Which, by the way, the, all this talking about in this way is really funny to me because this is how I see my own learning process and how I got to where I am. Um, other people observing that process might have seen something very different. Like from the get-go of both 30 Cent Signal, Space Camp, and Ruby and Rails, 
we've and I've been called arrogant, right? Like, oh, you think you know it all? You think what's know what's best and so on? And I'm like, no, like it took a while for me to get there, but once I got there, yeah, I did have. I ended up with opinions that I thought were well founded from at least um, prior art and sources. Like I wasn't just inventing all this shit uh, out mm -hmm. of just hey, let's sit down and spitball and and figure it out. Like this is. The application of, of copying previous masters in a different context and combine that with plenty of experience that uh, of going through those motions. Yeah. So it's, I suppose for me, the difference between invention and innovation, you know, you're connecting the dots and building on stuff that's come before rather than trying to create something unique that makes you look good, but actually is um, denying the work that people have put in before you. Um, Austin Kleon talks a lot about that and still like an artist. I don't know if you read that book, but it's a great book. Um, so I'm keen to know a little bit about more about this. Um, so part of the reason we reached out to you was just um, this post you wrote recently on Medium, which got an awful lot of attention called Reconsider. And I know a lot of the stuff you talked about and that is stuff that you guys have been championing for a long time about slow growth and business and just doing things a bit differently. But keen to know, given that you wrote that at Web Summit, what it was that um, motivated you to, to write that post and also some of the you know, let's say passion behind it uh, in terms of fighting against some of the, um, I suppose, obsession really with this billion dollar club that a lot of startups, particularly in the US, seem to be um, aiming for. Yes, yeah, so I think, that, as you say, most of the themes and the topics in the post were pots I've been stirring in my mind and loudly for a decade or more. Um, and a lot of that is informed all the way back from the last uh, big gold rush in technology, the dot-com boom and bust, which I happened to partake in a little bit by proxy, but not much through uh, Danish startups and incubators and, and setups and seeing the fallout of that um, and living through it. And perhaps in some ways, like that made me a grouchy old man, like someone who lived through the depression that like, oh, you got to save on butter because butter was like scarce or, or whatever it is, right? So I think there's a fair charge of saying like, hey, you can overlearn lessons from um, traumatic events, even though, I don't know, it wasn't that traumatic for me because uh, at the time at least, I sort of, I came out just well and just fine. Um, it was traumatic for a lot of other people. So it was more of a, experience through observation and empathy than it was lived experience of me having a really shitty time through dot com boom and bust. But in any case, sort of since we started Basecamp, which was all the way back in 2003 when we started working on it, um, the tech industry and the drums around San Franciscan economics and that outlook on how to start a business, I thought from the get-go was just a extremely distorted view of the world that I could not recognize and reconcile with my other lived experience of watching businesses in general. I think there's sometimes a misconception that, oh, well, we can just scope all lessons about business and, and starting companies to just technology. Like we have nothing to learn from any other sorts of businesses that's been around longer or in other industries, um, which is just found very myopic. And this myopia just, it gets its own momentum and gets going in a way that just I find nauseating. Um, and I find it nauseating for just a rah-rah nature of like all the good that's coming out of Silicon Valley in San Francisco, which there is plenty and there's also tons of 
garbage and dog shit and illness festered upon the world, right? And when you only hear the glamour and glory side of it, um, it just sounds, I don't know if hypocritical is the wrong word, but it just sounds uh, wrong. And I think, uh, especially when the chorus is, is so loud and so singular in its um, appreciation of a certain approach to business, it just really gets me fired up. Uh, in part because I've lived a different reality for the past 14 years that I've worked with Basecamp, right? And I've then at the same time been friends and, and observant and conversation partner with plenty of people who've been through the other machinery, right? And I've seen the experiences that many of those people go through come out on the other side and think like, Oh, this wasn't as glamorous as I thought it was going to be. This wasn't as great. Like, even if they win, mm -hmm. right? Most people don't win that game. But even if they win, and by winning, that definition is pretty enshrined into either selling your company or going public. Um, in other words, that like other people have to end up owning your company and be your be your boss, right? That that's the way that works. Um, that even in those winning scenarios, many of the conversations I have were conversations of dissolution, and they weren't shared. Like that's the that's where it's not even. The public persona we have of San Francisco and Silicon Valley and the tech industry from there is a very it's like a Facebook timeline, right? It's all the highlights. It's not all the shit. It's not all the times you maybe fight with your spouse or your kid is an asshole or you have a bad day at work or your boss yelled at you. Like what you put on your Facebook timeline is like, oh, we went on a cool vacation and like I think this celebrity's great. And like it's a very curated persona mm -hmm. and image. And if you take that at face value, you get a completely distorted view of what it's actually like. And you get a sort of tracker beam of motivation for people looking to do, oh, what should I do with my life? Oh, man, this startup thing looks amazing. Like, this is just what I do. I'm going to move to San Francisco, and I'm going to get a, an angel to invest in my seed round, and I'm going to get on with my series A, B, C, D, E, F, G, um, and everything is going to be bliss. Mm -hmm. And I just want to provide at least an alternative voice to that that says, like, hey, hold on, just one minute, uh, and let me give you a different perspective on how it can also turn out. Mm -hmm. Not only that, like how it can also turn out from like just if you choose to do this. Here's an alternative path too that is often ridiculed and often belittled by people who live the San Francisco Silicon Valley uh, mindset as lifestyle businesses or small-time businesses or small businesses or not ambitious enough, not trying to change the world enough. So um, fucking what? Like the world doesn't need everyone trying to change it per se. Like, uh, I think that's one of the other things that really kicked the ball on this was just getting sick and tired of the word disruption. Like, not only is over-application to mean everything, but also it's completely uncritical worship. All disruption is awesome always for everyone. And for the people who it's not awesome for, well, too bad. You're standing in the uh, way of progress and prosperity. And just like, come on. Like, it's not that one dimensional. 
Mm -hmm. So let's flesh out the dimensions a little bit and let's give it a little bit more of a, of a fill, a little bit more of a character and a little bit less glamour shots. And perhaps then people will end up with a fairer, more realistic view of what they are, their options are. If you want to start a new business, how can you do it? What are the approaches? What are the techniques? And what are the paths? Um, don't just get brainwashed into thinking like, hey, this is the only way and this is the only goal. There are yep. lots of ways and lots of goals, and uh, we need more attention shown on those alternative goals and paths that aren't getting like the top dollar billing all the time from the incredibly powerful and self-perpetuating model that's being beamed out across the world from uh, this tiny little uh, area called the Bay Area. Yeah. I mean, it feels a bit like us to the kind of Hollywood model or X Factor or American Idol, whatever you call it, where, you know, there's a very few a small group of people who actually make it and actually making it. What does that mean? Is that actually a good thing for them or the right. people around them? Um, so the Happy Startup School, we're called the Happy Startup School for a reason, because we really get people to tune into why they're doing it. Why are they setting out in business? And if they're going to start a business, um, what are their needs and how can they make other people's lives a little bit better and, you know, maybe change the world in their own way, but doesn't necessarily, like you say, need to take over the world. So one of the things we get people to do is really think about what success looks like and not following that hockey stick growth um, and assuming that's what success is, is just growth on growth for growth's sake. So, you know, one of the things we get people to focus on is time and impact and autonomy too. So you talked a lot about investors and how, you know, ultimately bringing them aboard might be great from, you know, funding perspective, but actually means you, you'll end up having bosses, which if you're setting out to run your own business is kind of counterintuitive, right? So do you think investment alone is necessarily a bad thing or are you just, you're just talking about sort of VC investment and, and giving over some of your, your business to these guys? Well, I think you need to know what you're getting into and you need to know the path you're choosing. If you're choosing to even accept uh, angel funding, then you've already chosen like an entire destiny for your company that you're not going to get out of that. Most people are not. Most people are locked into then a path that says, okay, I took someone's angel check. They will want an additional glorious return. Actually, not even just a modest return. They will want a glorious return on that check and they will push you towards a glorious return because their model works in such a way that most of their investments, they, fail. So the way that they pay off is that they have some spectacular, glorious results, right? So when you invite these people in to be your partners and your advisors, they're going to give you a certain set of advice that's going to take you in a certain direction. And that direction usually leads to series A, right? Right? Like that is the success criteria of uh, uh, angel funding for most of sort of this common path, right? That, that the angel funding turns into a series, a venture capital funding. Uh, and that venture capital funding then turns into X number of additional venture capital fundings. And as you can see there, you just, you just started your business, right? And then you accept that angel check. Now all of a sudden you've mapped out the next seven to nine years of the life cycle. And you have like um, the Blade Runner uh, robots, you have a time to live and you have a time to die and you know your time to die sort of upfront, as in the death being uh, your loss of control of when the sort of liquidity event needs to happen, right? Because mm -hmm. once you've taken Angel and once you've taken VC, 
liquidity needs to happen. That is the model. That's how it works. You just need to be really aware that that's what's going to happen, right? Like I've been now working for with Basecamp and uh, prior to being called Basecamp 37 Signals for 14 years. That cycle is just generally would not be possible in a VC run, uh, VC angel setup. What would have needed to happen would either we would have had to sell to someone else or we would have had to go public or we would otherwise have to turn the ownership of the company over to someone else. You cannot run a company on your own terms with yourself owning the, uh, the bulk of it for that long. Like, that's just not going to happen. Even the most spectacularly successful outcomes of this, the Facebooks and the Amazons and so on of the world, the founders of those end up holding not the majority of the shares, right? Like maybe they hold the, uh, a majority stake compared to all other stakeholders individually, but it's still a minority of the company. And if that's not what you're looking for, if that's not what you want, which in our case was not what we wanted, we wanted to be able to continue to call our own shots entirely, take all our own risks entirely, let it all fall on us, then it just doesn't work. Those things aren't compatible. So you just have to know that up front, right? And then that's the reason why I kind of want to draw up the consequences very clearly in someone's mind that taking that first 100,000 or 20,000 or whatever, it sets you on a certain path. Not only sets you, it virtually locks you into this path. So buyer beware, <laughs> um, uh, investee beware that this is the path that's going to take. Um, again, then I propose for a lot of people, there are alternative paths that do not require uh, external investment, that you self-fund, you self-build, you bootstrap in a slow, methodical way that um, sort of some people might not have the patience for. Yeah. And that's fine. Or some businesses, business models perhaps aren't compatible with those things. There are certainly certain business models that are more compatible with getting uh, tens of millions of dollars ingested into or injected into the company before they have a chance to turn it into a business. And then there are other business models like, for example, say selling software directly to customers online. That's very compatible with growing in a slow, methodical manner because you could do so in a profitable, um, sustainable way, which is how we ran Basecamp, right? Like Basecamp started with a um, product team of, um, of four people and stayed like that for a while and then very, very, very slowly grew one person at the time, right? Um, until, I don't know, five years later, what were we? 10 people, maybe eight people? That's an incredibly slow trajectory for, for any of these other models. It, it, it isn't compatible with those things. Yeah. So Amy Hoy talks a bit about being your own angel, a bit like you in terms of just, you know, bootstrapping your way as much as you can. Um, I'm curious to know, you talked a bit about Basecamp being in business quite a long time and you guys started The Distance, which is a blog for those who don't know, where you've shared stories of organizations and businesses that have been around for more than 25 years, I believe. And again, we've always looked at businesses that have been around for a while to inspire us because when you're thinking that far ahead, you need to make decisions or, you know, choose decisions differently. So do you think then founders should be thinking more about legacy rather than just exit in terms of you know what their strategies are for building a business rather than just for three years for 25 or 50 years absolutely and uh, i want to prop up and glamorize the uh, indulgence of being able to have a legacy and work with something for a very long time because it's the antithesis in many ways of this model 
um, when you do follow this model, um, very, very few people end up sticking with companies for the long term because the economic incentives are not aligned with that in most cases. In most cases, what works out is that the thing either blows up because it's, it's geared and it's injected from the get-go with um, kind of like steroids, right? That <laughs> makes it grow really fast if it can, and then otherwise it's just going to turn into this deformed beast um, that needs to be put down. Or um, it turns into an acquisition, which is also, quote unquote, a success, whether it's an acquire hire or it's an actual acquisition. Um, both outcomes are in many ways the same is that the, the people involved with the company, like, they no longer own the thing. And one thing I've learned is that people who have the mental sort of attitude of wanting to start a new company, they work generally poorly for other people. <laughs> so once they're acquired, um, they stick around for a maximum of two years, which is the usual golden handcuff um, expiration date, and then they're out, right? Hmm. Um, so the only possible way that they stick around further is that they turn into the um, Zuckerbergs of the world, right? Who end up still minority uh, holder in sort of terms of outstanding shares, but have at least um, relatively good control, as much as you could say within uh, the control that uh, someone running a public company has, and like. Then, then that's the success criteria. You basically have to be fucking Mark Zuckerberg for this to work. <laughs> I mean, what hope does that give to anyone else who wants to follow this path and still have aspirations of running something for the long term and having making a dent in the universe, not just over 18 months or 24 months, but over 10 years, 14 mm -hmm. years, 20 years, 25 years as we're uh, exploring with the distance. Those yeah. things are just not compatible. And I think people just don't, it isn't in their mind because people aren't talking about this. Like legacy in, it's funny because legacy in software is a dirty word. Legacy mm -hmm. software is a derogatory term. This is what you use to describe the stale and, and so on. Where to me, legacy is beautiful. Legacy is uh, a Leica camera from 1957 that you can still use and still get serviced by the same company. Amazing. Legacy is the, Porsche 911, uh, born in 1967, still rolling around on the road uh, with a company there to back it. Beautiful. Yeah. Right? Like that's the pantheon of companies that I'm interested in joining, not the, the Singas of the world or the Groupons or any of these other uh, massively injected, sterilized models that explode and burn very brightly for a very short period of time and leave a massive corruption and nail behind it as they yeah. implode. So yeah, we get people to think about their epitaph, you know, when they start out, what, after the company's closed down, what's, what does that epitaph look like? And you get some really interesting responses to that. And people can get quite emotional when, if they think about their epitaph being that they made a lot of money and sold out, it doesn't really look so great. So you need to- right. Which is funny because that whole notion of selling out, like that used to have a stigma and it, the stigma is gone. Mm. Like this, the stigma now is almost a reverse. Um, people who turn down billion dollar offers or whatever, they're called idiots. Like, oh, why the fuck didn't you just take the money? Like, perhaps <laughs> because there's more to it. Yeah. Perhaps there's more to my 
existence here in time earth than measured in size of bank account, right? Again, that is not to diminish the motivation of financial security. It's just that if that's actually what you want, if you want financial security in the term of like, well, I know where my next meal is going to get paid and I don't have to worry about rent. Like, what the fuck are you trying to get odds of getting a billion dollar exit? Those odds are so vanishingly pathetically small. You should be trying to build a $5 million a year company, a $10 million a year company. Those are the odds that are actually realistic. And that doesn't mean they're likely. It just means that they're far, far, far more realistic and achievable than trying to become the next billion dollar company, the next unicorn, right? And that's what we lose when we put the unicorn on this pedestal that like, this is the be all end all goal. And if you're not getting there, you're failing, right? You're like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, uh, if you get to build a $10 million a year company, how are you failing again? Like, how is that not a roaring epic success if you otherwise get to do so in a manner where you respect your customers and your employees and you have a fun time building what it is that you're building? And perhaps you can even dare enjoy other things in life outside of just building that goddamn company, right? Uh, and that's what we've been trying to do with Basecamp. Not just trying, that's what we have been doing with Basecamp uh, for the past 14 years. Slowly, methodically building up a business that's um, not only sustainable in a way like that the odds of it going away tomorrow are relatively low, although certainly there for all companies. Everything can be, get obsoleted or Blackberry or whatever. But that we're not going to implode over our own steroid injections um, and we can run things in a, in a way that have good odds. That's really what I want to impart on people that you have to compare the odds of these outcomes and you have to adjust your motivations accordingly. There are people in this world who like, well, fuck it. I'm going to take the one in 10,000 odds of becoming the next Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg or whatever. That's what I want. Like anything else is failure. Okay. Awesome. Have at it. Get going with your angel rounding and your series A, B, C, D, E, F, G and your IPO and like best of luck to you. And then there are, I think, a far, far greater group of people who would like better, much better odds of merely becoming a paltry millionaire, right? <laughs> like, oh, you sorry sap who have amassed a million dollars. Like, what a pathetic um, small goal and narrow-minded. Like, and I go like, Ken, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, give me great odds at that outcome and I'll jump at that ticket anytime <laughs> of the day. Sure. And I want people to think about that. What are the odds that they want? And what are the outcomes that they want? And how much does their life change between reaching the very low rungs of quote unquote, having made it and the very high rungs of quote unquote, having made it. Yeah. And also what sacrifices are they making to get that? Um, yes. Because you're, yeah, it's like you're delaying your happiness until you get that end goal, whatever that may be. And it just seems such a big um, thing to sacrifice just for that lottery win, really. Yep. Um, so finally, before we go, I'm just conscious of your time, uh, Dave. Um, was just really what can we and others do and even yourself do to not just talk about this stuff but actually change things you know we're trying to do it at our end by trying to create a new model for how startups start um and also trying to create community and stories where people can 
hear a different narrative that's not just about you know that high growth but actually about the experiences and value that people can create when they do something that they're really passionate about and not doing it for the money so yeah any thoughts on on that and, and have you seen things in the states that give you hope i think what you're describing is sharing the counter narratives amplifying the counter narratives and cultivating them, getting more people to share alternative strategies and views outside of the mainstream projection is wonderful. That's what we're trying to do. That's the best way I know how of, to share this is going back to Kathy Sierra, try to out teach, out share people mm. um, and present terms in and to me, at least like this is my style in an unapologetic way. Like I don't apologize at all for not trying to become a billionaire, right? Like I'm not yeah. growling here at the low ends of my lifestyle business um, level of success. I'm saying like, I goddamn love what I do every day and I get to do it with the legacy of a company that's been around for 15 years and working with people for decade or more. Like, this is awesome. You should try this, right? Mm -hmm. I, I want it to be a positive uh, image and alternative strategy that uh, sort of is appealing on its own two feet. And that's one part of it. Then I also do enjoy taking all sorts of shots at the mainstream narrative, right? <laughs> Deconstructing it and picking it apart and analyzing it in ways that people aren't used to seeing it analyzed. And I think that is what gives me hope that um, a post like Reconsider can reverb so hard across an industry that um, I got all sorts of even VCs responding to it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then on top of that, which is sort of like a defensive thing, right? What's more interesting is reaching people who go like, oh, I didn't even consider that. Like I was just like, the field of view was this, now the field of view is that or this. <laughs> Right? I have a broader spectrum now. I have a wider lens and I can see more of the scenery and I can focus on, on other things and I can decide for me what part of this now grander scenery is, is right for me. And the feedback I get from a surprising amount of people is like, oh yeah, I don't like that narrative either. I just thought that I was weird. <laughs> That's funny, actually. One of the main feedbacks I've gotten on the bulk of my writing, everything from reconsider to rework to remote, has the most passionate responses have been for people who already knew what I had to say, but they thought they were the only ones. Mm. So getting that resonance and seeing like, oh, there are other people like me who are thinking like this is incredibly powerful. Yeah. And I think it's powerful just to give people the self-confidence to stick with it and stick with their other chosen paths that like they don't have to feel bad they don't have to feel weird um they can proudly hold their head and say like i know this is what i'm doing this is these are my goals um they might not conform to your beauty standards of uh what goals are supposed to look like and uh, uh and dreams of billionaireish and is is supposed to be but they're mine and i'm proud of them and i'm not going to apologize for them yeah and does it piss you off that people then look down because it's not that high growth and billion dollar club or are you comfortable with that? They're not the people that you need to, it, um, to validate your, your thoughts anyway. I think that's a big part of it, right? I, at, I've arrived perhaps at a, perhaps that's where the arrogant label came from. I arrived at a fairly early stage in my 
career and business experience with a high sense of self-assessment. Mm-hmm. I was going to judge my goals. I'm going to judge my approach. And you know what? Fuck you. If you think that you somehow hold the power over me to judge my goals and, and my approach, right? Like, so take your lifestyle business bullshit and stick it somewhere else. Um, because I'm not going to subject to that. So there's a sense of uh, personal empowerment, I think, that comes from that, comes from that realization that, like, hey, I have the power to make me happy and take my choices from it. Even if they don't conform, even if people ridicule them, and even if they sort of seem screwy. Because I think a lot of things seem screwy in a very short time frame. And then, again, if you broaden the lens, look at a longer period of time, the history of commerce and the world, um, selling good products to people who want to buy them at a fair and profitable price. You know what? Not such a novel concept. Mm. Pretty time-tested. Like, I'm not actually breaking a ton of new ground here necessarily. Perhaps I'm just rediscovering or re-emphasizing uh, a set of values and beliefs that's actually been around for a long time and stood the test of time. Maybe it's this other approach that is not nearly as time-tested as you think it is. Yeah. That's interesting. The first bit you touched on, I think, is where we see, I think, happiness and entrepreneurship overlapping is that, you know, you go into business to be your own boss and to do things your way. And if you can actually understand that you yourself have so much power, that inner still that you seem to have is something that people don't quite appreciate. They have all the answers. They don't need to look for sort of validation from other people, whether it's money or, or you know, proof. It's, you sounded like you were very confident in your own ability, which some might, be, might see as arrogance, but actually to a lot of people, it's just the, the stubbornness you need to be an entrepreneur, right? It certainly works better that way. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's an easier way at arriving at a happy place. Again, yeah. everything is a balance, and if you, you can certainly overdo it, and you can think that you are the only one who have all the answers, and everyone else is a moron, and that's not going to lead you to a good place either. But um, I think more entrepreneurs, especially ones starting, especially the ones not sort of pursuing this traditional investment path, they're not in that boat. They're generally in the other boat, where mm-hmm. they question themselves and they doubt themselves. And they think, oh, maybe my goals are wrong. Maybe my approach is wrong. Maybe I should just like take someone else's money and figure out a way to blow it as fast as possible. Um, so I'd rather sort of let's tilt the windmills a little bit in the direction of, of self-confidence through the uh, bootstrapped approach. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I think what we're trying to do is create that new narrative, create a community of people who are like-minded and yeah, rather than trying to convert guys who would never ever believe in this approach, just trying to change it from the outside by creating a new, a new alternative. And it's great that guys are like you out there just popping holes in it and, you know, prodding them a little bit. <laughs> I, I, I try and I enjoy it. So. Good. Yeah, I can tell that. That's good. <laughs> and they deserve it. So well done. Um, David, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a million for for joining me today. And um, yeah, if anyone wants to follow up with you afterwards, I guess they can follow you on Twitter, DHH. That's a good place. Uh, And I publish on Medium now as well. We just moved our main uh, blog, Signal versus Noise, to Medium. So I'm at DHH on uh, Medium as well. That's where the Reconsider post is uh, posted. And we can expect some more rants from you soon? 
Uh, always, whenever the uh, motivation strikes. Um, reconsider was unusually in the sense of blog posts. Usually I don't invest as much time as, in as, as, a, as I did. That was in part because they intended it to be a conference talk. Uh, it turned out to then to be a post, but given the reception of it, maybe I will invest a little more time <laughs> in substantial rants like that going forward. So we'll see. Brilliant stuff, David. Thanks a million. And um, yeah, if anyone wants to check out what we're doing at Happy Startup School, head to www.thehappystartupschool.com. Okay, thanks again. And um, yeah, look forward to seeing what you get up to in, in the future. Thanks. All Appreciate right. It. Cheers, David.